If you were to grab your Bible, we're looking at Genesis chapter 42. We will be going lightly into 43 tonight, but we must finish 42. If you remember, we spoke about uh, the, the brothers of Joseph now returning to Egypt. And remember, now Joseph is now the second most powerful man on the planet as he's second in command under the Egyptian pharaoh. And now he has been sitting there and Jacob has sent his sons back to Egypt to gather grain. He says, what are you doing sitting here looking at each other? At least we die. Go to Egypt and buy grain for us before we faint. And now Joseph accuses his brothers because he recognized them. Remember we spoke about how he looks like an Egyptian. However, they look like Canaanites. They look like the Israelites, the people of Canaan. They look like, they look like nomads. They look like shepherds. But here Joseph was fully shaved and probably deep within makeup. He was wearing the garments of a, a pharaoh as he sat on his throne making sure that the, 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 the nations were coming to him for food and he was there as representing the Pharaoh and they did not recognize him. We see Joseph speaking harshly to his brothers. You must understand, he didn't speak kindly to them. You might wonder, well it's not easy, it's not a stretch of the mind to, uh, to imagine him speaking harshly. But we must remember that Joseph has already forgiven his brothers. He's already forgave them long before they showed up in Egypt. This should resonate within your soul, Christian, that you should forgive the offender long before you even see them. But they didn't ask me. They didn't ask me to forgive them. Doesn't matter. The forgiving is not for them, it's for you. Amen. For if Joseph had not forgave his brothers, you must remember he was in Egypt 20 years. He had been in power at least seven at this point. If he had not forgiven his brothers at this point, he would have long, lo and behold, sent chariots right down to the Canaanite border to capture the city that Jacob's sons were at, leveling it because that's what spiteful, vindictive people do. Amen? Amen. They get their chance. They buy their time. They, they stand back and say, like karma, you get what you deserve. You get what you come back. But thank God we here at Riverside and we as Christians don't believe in karma. You don't know what karma means. What goes around comes around like a boomerang. You throw it and it comes back. I ask you tonight, have you ever slighted someone, backstabbed or betrayed, let someone down? Well, you get what you deserve. What goes around comes around. It's not true. We're sitting here today and we're forgiven. We're sitting here today and He has shown mercy towards us as a people. And we should have gotten hell. No, not just any hell. The darkest and the worst parts of hell. Each person here, if you are forgiven and have grace lavished upon you, you didn't reap what you sowed, honestly. For you're reaping grace and mercy today. Man, I don't like it when the preacher preaches like this. Because that means i got to forgive somebody. That means i got to show grace to somebody who don't deserve it. Just like we don't deserve it. Joseph could have leveled his brothers at this point. He does speak harshly towards them. But you must remember, Joseph had their best intentions in mind. For he loved his brothers, even though they did that. 
even though they betrayed Him. Maybe that's foreign to you and you don't quite understand that. But let me put it in the light of, in the light of your life. You may be facing trials and tribulations today and it don't feel good. But you must realize who dictated those things because the scripture says he is the author and the finisher of your faith. He writes out your story. And if he allows anything in your life, it's for your good. Like it says in Romans 8, 28. That all things work towards good, Peter. All things, all things work towards good. Even the cancer, even the sickness, the betrayal, even the backstabbing, even having the carpet poured out from under you. It's for your good. It may not feel good, and it certainly is not good, but it's for your good. Joseph speaks harshly to his brothers. You might even consider it offensive, scary. As an adversary, you would even imagine that it looks like he is not on their side you would think that he's being vindictive. No, for if he was, he would have already leveled their homes. He's showing grace and mercy. Christian tonight, you don't have a Pharaoh who reigns over you. You have a sovereign God who is your relative, who is the Son of God, who reigns forevermore. And if you're facing storms and tribulations, if you're facing trials and the rough side of the mountain, know that He has allowed it. Even if He speaks harshly to you, even if the whip cracks across your back, it's for your good. He's showing grace to you and mercy. Amen. Now why? Why does Joseph do this? It's a process. Because we'll see in Simeon, we'll see in Reuben, and we'll even see in Judah, the most wicked of them all, you'll see a change in the next few verses. You'll see, you'll see his oldest brother vouching for his younger brother. You'll see contention in the family. You'll see Jacob's heart falter and fall. But it's all a process. Tonight you might Feel like you're under the blacksmith's hammer and he's wailing away on you. He's beating you. He's beating the dross off your heart. For truly, if you lived in prosperity, wealth, health, and all the things that your hearts desire, your heart would grow cold and indifferent to God. You would ignore his beckonings and callings because you're so comfortable. The megaphone of affliction speaks into our hearts and drives us closer to Jesus. Amen, somebody. Amen. So now, the analogy of Joseph being harsh with his brothers. We see it in verse 24. And he turned away from them and wept. Because Joseph understood them in the previous verse in their native tongue. He heard his native tongue. Probably hadn't heard it in 20 years. He hears his own brothers and they're talking about him. He turns his head and he weeps. I'm sure the deep mascara that the Egyptians wore in honor of Ra ran, but he wiped it away. As he knew the hearts of his brothers had changed from the last time he heard them mocking and laughing at him from the pit. Until they pulled him out of the pit. I'm sure he saw their stone faces as they pushed him into the arms of the Midianites and sold him for a few pieces of silver. Now he's looking at his brothers and he sees their faces in anguish and their hearts are broken. And he turns his head and weeps. We spoke last time about Isaiah 53 verse 3. 
That our Jesus is a man acquainted with sorrow. That Jesus was not real stouch and starchy. He was not one moved for the emotion. He was one who was moved by emotions. He saw the brokenness of sin. He wept in Luke chapter 19, 41 over a whole city that stoned the prophets and turned their eyes away from him. He cries in John chapter 11, verse 35 over the brokenness of humanity because his friend Lazarus was now laying in a grave. Jesus wept just like Joseph here weeps. I tell you, if you understand me, it's easy to talk to me and me to talk to you. If you've never been through anything, you've never lost or suffered anything, you never or was raised in such a way where you had to scratch and crawl to make it or, or had people turn against you, you don't resonate with me. I love talking to people who can understand me and knowing that Jesus understands me. Helps me talk to him a little more. Let's be honest. Some people want a plastic Jesus. You know the little plastic baby Jesus we have. We got a, we got a little over. Uh, we got our little manger scene up here. It's probably made of porcelain. But people treat Jesus like he's a perfect plastic Jesus. And they take him out once a year. Put him in the front yard. And let everybody know they love Jesus. Put him back in the closet for the rest of the year. And that's all the Jesus they need and want. Someone like me. Someone like me needs a suffering Jesus because I've suffered. Someone like me needs a Jesus who understands because when everybody else don't understand what I'm going to, He does. Come on. And whenever uh, the darkness don't live, He walked in the darkness to find someone like me. He left the 99 brother to come find me. It don't make sense to nobody else, but until you're that, nine, that one of the 99, that one who's caught up in the thorns, it don't make no sense. But whenever you resonate and know a Jesus who weeps, a Jesus who sees your suffering, who simply sympathizes with you. He's not standing there with his arms folded, popping you every once in a while, hitting you with a lightning bolt just for kicks, that he shows grace and mercy towards you, that even your suffering is not for nothing but to make you more into his image. It causes me to want to hear him. It causes me to, to, to commune with him, to talk to him, talk about him, fall in love with him, and fall out of love with the things of this world. Here, he turns his head and weeps, but in the same moment, when he wipes away his tears in verse 24, he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. The tenderness of Joseph is seen from the tears, but he has his brother bound before his other brothers to make a statement. That he is not to be trifled with. That he is a king. This looks harsh. Why did he choose Simeon? Well, you remember back in chapter 39 or 38, uh, there was a city called Shechem. And here, Simeon and his brother Levi, they ride into town, wiping out the whole town. His other brothers followed suit. They go in and pillage the town, taking the leftovers and the, all the things of value and taking the women and children, totally decimating this whole town. So Jay, jo, Joshua, Joseph was actually doing a, 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 he was doing a service to his brothers because Simeon was a leader. Probably the cold-hearted, probably one who was most indifferent about selling him into slavery. Reuben should have been the one wrapped in chains. But however, if you remember, Reuben was one who vouched for him. So it falls on Simeon. Maybe he wanted to separate Simeon and Levi because they would influence the group. But at this point, Simeon is found to be in chains in the presence of his brothers. You might think that doesn't look very tender. That doesn't look very loving. 
Sometimes tough love is the only thing that resonates with people like me. Let's be honest. The hardest lessons in life are the ones that you causes you to fall. And sometimes the mountain falls on you. Let's be honest. And God uses those teachable moments to let you know that you ain't God. And you can't even walk without even holding His hands. And I know that's a song and I love it. He took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain. But you notice, even in his harshness, to replace every man's money in his sack and give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them, if you're reading ESV. It was done for them. Whatever you're facing tonight, it wasn't done to you. It was done for you. Oh, Y'all didn't hear me. You don't get what I'm saying. That loss that you faced this past year, it wasn't done to you. It was done for you. Amen. That brokenness you faced, it wasn't done to you. It was done for you. When you look at it like that, you can embrace the loss. You can embrace the brokenness and the sadness. You can embrace it. It won't done to you. It's done for you. Jesus won't crucified. He wasn't jumped in an alley, beat up and mugged. It wasn't done to him. It was done for you. Amen. I'm going to preach my heart out. But it's up to you to receive it. Amen. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching for you. Amen. Here... In verse 26, they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give to the donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw in the mouth of his sack and he said to his brothers, My money has been put back here and is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed and they turned trembling and saying one to another, What is this that God has done to us? Nowhere in Scripture do you see for the last 20 years Reuben or Simeon or Judah or Zebulun, none of them mentioning God. But all of a sudden, they're trembling. They're saying, why has God done this to us? All of a sudden, they're, they're mentioning God because now Joseph, just a little bit earlier, said, I am one who believes in Yahweh. I'm the one who fears God. I fear Him. He mentions them and something triggers within their heart. Their conscience is burnt and it, and it awakens up and they remember what they did to Joseph and now they're mentioning God here again. So let this resonate, believer. Keep talking about God. Keep talking about Jesus. Even if that stone cold hearted coworker is there, still mention his holy name. When they slide into your car to get a ride to go to lunch, make sure the gospel music station still won't. Let them hear about the blessed Redeemer. Let them know that you spent time this weekend in a place gathered with other believers to have your faith rekindled and ignited to fall in love with this Master, this Savior, this Redeemer named Jesus. Keep saying his name. Because his name penetrates the darkness. It seeps in like a scud missile to the very depths of a man's heart. And it will break it and shatter it. As the story unfolds, God penetrates the stony hearts of these men who just a couple of chapters ago go and decimate a whole town using a ceremony almost like a sacrilegious uh, a weapon to disable these people by circumcision. He goes in and slaughters them. But we'll see how God penetrates his stony heart and changes them. Because God can. As long as they're drawing breath. Keep praying for them. Keep mentioning His blessed name. And yes, they're addicted. 
Yes, they're chained. Yes, they're in prison. Yes, they're wayward. Yes, they're a prodigal. Yes, they're rebels and deflectors. Yes, they deserve hell, just like each and one of us. But somebody prayed for you. Amen. Somebody mentioned His blessed name to you. Somebody invited you to church. Somebody drug you to church. Maybe they, you dug your heels in, but they still brought you. And God beckoned you and called you, shattered your stony heart, and planting there a word that was like a seed down into good ground and now has brought forth faith. Here, what is this that God has done to us? They believe that God is punishing them for what they did to Joseph. Christian, tonight, I want you to have an understanding in the theology of Christ. God does not punish you. He is not punishing you if you're facing adversity, affliction in this life. God is not punishing you. He's already punished Jesus. He has no need to punish you. There's no wrath for you. With that being said, it's not done to you, it's done for you that God is doing this to develop you into the image of Christ. Our hearts are so stony, our hearts are so cold that loss, affliction, brokenness, loneliness is sometimes the only thing that awakens us up to the fact that He is God and He forgives sinners. Amen. I'm preaching better than y'all acting, but that's alright. Why has God done this to us? The first thing we do whenever we face something bad is say, God, why did you do this to me? We do like Joseph, Job does. All through the chapters of Job, him and, his, him and his friends, they debate on why God is doing what He's doing. And you heard me say, we don't need to know why, we just need to know who, who He is. If the brothers knew who Joseph was, that he's the second in command of Egypt, they would know that it was for their good. Even though they're facing all this harshness. Believer tonight, you know who is on the throne. You know who is God. You know He reigns. So you don't need to even know why. You just know who He is. His best, His, His, His intentions towards you are for good. To make you in the image of Christ. In verse 29, the story unfolds. And when they came to Jacob, the father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened and saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. What if every believer felt that way about Jesus or His messenger whenever He stood in the pulpit? They walked away. He spoke mean to me. And they go home and get their blankie and indulge in their sins because their snowflake hearts are broken. Sometimes the harshness that comes from the pulpit is what you need. And let it ring in your ears that there's a God and there's a judgment day. And you'll stand before Him and you need a Redeemer. They say the leader of the land spoke roughly towards us, Daddy. He was mean to me. But we said to him, we are honest men. Verse 31, that's a lie. And you know that's a lie because they threw their own brother into slavery. We have never been spies, which could be true. It's probably true. Verse 32, we are 12 brothers, one of us of our father. One is no more. And the youngest to this day is with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. 
and take grain for the famine of your household and go your way. At first, when Joseph spoke to them, if you remember back in 41, or chapter 40 here at the beginning, he actually said, I'm going to keep all of you and send one of you home. But he showed grace and mercy and let them all go and kept one. Verse 34, bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. They emptied their sacks, and behold, every man's bundle of money was in their sack. And they and their father saw the bundles of money. They were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now... You will take Benjamin? All this has come upon and to come against me. Verse 36, we'll focus here for just a moment. Here, here Jacob. Y'all remember Jacob? We've been talking about him for a couple of months. This is Jacob. You remember he walked in God's favor. Even in Romans chapter 9 later on, Paul will write, Esau I loved, but Jacob I loved. Esau I hated, but Jacob I loved. We look at that and we say, well, how could God hate anybody? That don't make any sense. But the astounding idea of the, the whole text is this, that God loved Jacob. He shouldn't have loved Jacob. He shouldn't have showed favor towards him. He shouldn't have laid his hand on him, told him he would never be his banner, that he'll be Jehovah Nisi, that he'll be Jehovah Shalom, always present, Jehovah Shalom, that he will be uh, with him, Jehovah Jireh, his provider. And he should have never done that because he had nothing to warrant those things. The fact that Jacob was loved by God is the blessing and one that's impossible, that is too great for us to fathom. That God has loved us sinners like He has loved Jacob. That's the amazing thing. But here in verse 36, Jacob does not recount those things. He doesn't remember that he was with him when he crossed over the river. That he was his for he was he was the trailblazer and he was his rear guard. He was the one who put a hedge around him and protected him against Laban. That he protected him and watched over him. That he has given him children. That he has kept his promises towards him. No, Jacob doesn't remember that. He remembers the bad things that he's faced. And in verse 36, he says, All this has come against me. And in some versions it says, Everything's against me. Jacob weeps and says, The whole world is against me. My heart is faint. And it's just like us believers to forget the blessings of God. Only in this very moment, only in the very moment of affliction we remember that because we're prone to react from pain. Amen. Only when pain strikes we move. Here Jacob says, all this has come against me. All this is greater than God. I can't see God through any of this. Here he cries out, oh woe is me. He has a pity party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's bad to lose children. Absolutely. But he forgot who his God is. I don't know what you're facing tonight. I'm sure it's a big mountain. I don't know how big that valley is you're in. Or how deep the pit or how hot the fiery furnace. Or what kind of lions prowl around you in the lion's den. I don't know. I've got my own. But I know God is bigger than that mountain. He's bigger than that valley. He's stronger than those lions. And His power is more infinite and more white hot than any fire you walk through. Amen. 
all this is against me. I just want to come along the side of him and say, Jacob, oh Jacob, do you not know he's on your side? That he has not forgotten you, he's not forsaken you. That he is God and he reigns forevermore. Like I want to come along beside some of you. Yes, I know what the doctor said. I know what the children are doing. I know what the spouse is up to. I, I see and I understand. I know you're facing this adversity, this loneliness and this depression. I know. But God is greater than all that. He's mightier. He's stronger. He's able. He is the comforter. He is the prince of peace. Lord of glory. Lord of hosts of army angels. He is our God in whom we serve. Amen. So let us pause for a moment and look at Jacob. We can almost poke him and laugh at him and say, get up. <laughs> no, no. We've thrown our own pity parties and the only people that came was us. Let's be honest. Amen. Let us have a, a right thinking tonight of suffering. If you're suffering, it's not for your demise. If you're facing depression and sickness, if you're facing a bed of affliction, if you're facing those things, it's not a punishment to you. It's for you. Amen. To make you in the image of Christ. Even in the diagnosis, even whenever they give you that pink sleep of paper and you leave the doctor and it says what it is, you can still have tears and weep. You can still come to the funeral, put your hand on the casket as they lower it down into the dust and miss the loved one. You can still walk across and see your ex over across the street and you can still have that longing of brokenness in your heart. You can still see those family members who have blackballed you and called you the black sheep, but you can do it through joy. Joy unspeakable. Joy through the betrayal. Joy. Joy through the kiss of betrayal like Judah. Joy. Oh, Jacob, remember who is your God. Remember that He is faithful. Now we see Reuben in verse 37. He tries to make all things right. But you remember, Reuben is the oldest brother, but he has no credibility in this family anymore. Back in 37, he actually slept with his father's concubine. He has no credibility. He, his father don't trust him. How hard it is for a parent when they don't trust their children. How awful it is whenever they can't believe a word they say and they have no integrity. Verse 37, Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring them back to you. Put them in my hands and I'll bring him back to you. Give me, give me Benjamin and I'll bring him back. And if I don't come back, you can kill your grandchildren. Oh yeah, that'll go over great, right? That's one thing that'll make him feel so much better is killing his own grandchildren. But Reuben's trying. Yes, I'm sure Reuben, I, I, I'm really sure in verse 37, it doesn't sound the, the words of a hard-hearted man. Yes, he fell in the past and he thought it was covered up because you don't read about it. It's only a, a couple of verses that he did the sin against his father and nobody talks about it. Just like in your family, those dark things nobody talks about. You know why God uses messed up families? Because that's all there are. This family's just as messed up as yours, if not if even worse. Some of us are giving it run for the money, let's be honest. But here he says, Jacob, if... I don't come back with Benjamin. You can kill my children. Reuben's children were the pride of his life, his two sons. So he took what he's saying very seriously. 
In verse 38, but he said, My son will not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If any harm should come on him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs to the sorrow of Sheol or hell. Jacob is saying to his son, You shall not go down. You are not going anywhere with my boy. You already lost one of my boys. You have no credibility in this family. In fact, later, I think it's 48, he really socks it to him. He takes his inheritance away. For Reuben has ruined his relationship and his reputation in this family. And Reuben had to live with that. See, some people believe that whenever you ask Jesus into your heart and He forgives you of all your sins, all your mistakes on this earth that you've done are supposed to be erased and everybody is supposed to see you as a new creature. But no, they still, they still see Tickle and Boo Boo and they still see you. They still see the same face. That ain't changed. The new man inside is changed. But you have to live with the, the result of what your life has been like. But thank God He'll give you grace for that because nowhere do we see that Reuben says, Oh, I ain't going to have nothing else to do with you. You can't see that I'm changed. No, he still lives within his community. Still part of the family. And he lives with it, bearing that scarlet letter because that's his to bear. But God gives him the grace to do it. So if you're here today and you made a mistake, you have done your time in jail, you've been locked up, you have been drugged through the mud and you're still walking around tainted, well, wear it well. Still living for Christ. When other people can't accept you for being a new believer, be a new believer anyway. Trust Him anyway. But there's something I want you to look at here. Jacob is very intensive. He's very to the point. In verse 38, he has stated it. I'm the type of person when I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Even if i got to cut my own nose off my face, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it with all my ability the best I can. And here Jacob, he says, there's no way you're taking my son to Egypt. You have already lost one son. I'm putting my foot down. He's being very bullheaded. Because in the very next chapter, he recants and he changes his mind. It's funny how starvation would do that to you. When you're facing starvation. Let this resonate into someone's heart here tonight. Don't be bullheaded. Don't set your mind on one thing, even if it's even to the detriment of yourself or your children and your family, your marriage, your church, your relationships. Don't set your mind on something, even if it hurts you and ruins you and everyone around you because you said it and you're sticking to the words that you said. Jacob in chapter 43 would change his mind. He has to. If he is to survive and his children, he has to. But my word is golden. When I said it, that's just, I said it, I have to do it. Don't be a fool. Don't be Jacob. God loved Jacob. Even though he was foolish and rash and he was deceitful and supplanter, God showed him grace. And in one way he showed him grace is he caused his heart to be able to change his mind. Tonight, in chapter 43, when Jacob changes his mind, he saves himself, he saves his children and his grandchildren, he saves his relationship with his own family, and he saves the, the well-being of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the twelve 
tribes of Israel when he changes his mind. I'm not saying change your mind about this church or change your mind about the preacher. I'm talking about when you say, I'm going to do this thing, and you find out later that maybe you're wrong. You can't say, I was wrong. You can humble yourself like Christ humbled himself. If Jesus can come and wrap a towel around his waist and wash feet and serve tables, then you can certainly do the same in your household. Men, don't let the soap and water from the dishes wash off your machismo. Humble yourself and serve your household. Be the biggest sinner in your house and know you're the biggest sinner and be the first one to say I was wrong I shouldn't have spoke that way I shouldn't have been so rash even the scripture tell us men that we are to love our wives as the weaker vessel that we're to show compassion like Christ shows towards the church men would you want to be married to you thank you that our groomsmen here that we are his bride that he's gracious and kind towards us that when we make mistakes, He forgives and He shows grace. Thank you. I can serve a groom like that. Amen. To be honest with you, I can't serve a groom like me. Someone who's harsh and someone who lays down the law. This is the way it's going to be. Let us serve like Jesus serves. With compassion, grace, and mercy. Amen. And if you don't like that, there's no hope for you. I'd rather be broken by grace than having a stiff neck and God's twisting my head off because I won't buckle and I won't change. He even tells us, coming to me, all you are heavy laden and burdensome for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us serve a Jesus like that and serve like Jesus like that. Let us bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you.